I was a uh, practicing clinician working in a home health agency model. I wasn't allowed to dose my patients as per best practice guidelines. So I said, there's gotta be a way to do this better. My, my grandmother and my grandfather, I started seeing them going in and out of long-term care. It started personal, seeing the sick side of 80, and now it's been exciting to be part of Fox. Light bulb moment, like, that's a complete game changer. You can see what we can do as a practice and as treating clinicians to really make 80, 85 look so much different than it did back that long ago. Boil it down into one say, it's quite simply this, it's be stronger, live better longer. Welcome to Fox Rehabilitation's Live Better Longer podcast, the podcast dedicated to clinicians who work with older adults. And yes, it is dedicated to clinicians, but you don't have to be a clinician to enjoy the Live Better Longer podcast. I think today's episode is a great example of that. I think this should be of major interest to you, whether you are a clinician or you're not. So as most of you should know, if you are following Fox Rehabilitation on social media, which you should be doing, we are celebrating Better Hearing and Speech Month all month long. But did you know that the month of May is also Stroke Awareness Month? So to have conversations, continued conversations about strokes, stroke prevention, stroke awareness, today I will be joined by cerebrovascular and endovascular neurosurgeon and one of the foremost leaders in neurointervention, Dr. Jay Mako. So I like keeping tabs of everyone that I've interviewed in my career I've interviewed David Bowie, Lady Gaga, Snoop Dogg, and today, for the first time, I interview a neurosurgeon, and I'm pumped for it. So before we bring on Dr. J. Mako, just want to remind everyone that next week, Thursday, May 18th at 6.30 p.m., we are teaming up with the Dr. Carol B. Lewis for a Can't Miss webinar. It is titled, Finding a Job with Purpose. So, Carol B. Lewis, she owns her lane. I would say she is a legend in her lane. So, to all the new grads out there, or even veteran clinicians that are looking for purpose in their career, or just looking to soak up some of that Carol B. Lewis wisdom, we highly encourage you to attend this webinar. Once again, it's happening Thursday, May 18th. 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It is titled, Finding a Job with Purpose. The cost of the webinar, absolutely free. To register, go to foxrehab.org. It's right there on our homepage. And you can also go to the events section on our Facebook page or our LinkedIn page. And it's as easy as just filling in your information, registering for the event, and then it all goes down live Thursday, May 18th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are back on Fox Rehabilitation's Live Better Longer podcast, and I am now joined by Dr. Jay Mako. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be here and be a part of it. I wanted to welcome you before I read your title. Because this 
This could take a while. This could take the rest of the podcast. So cerebrovascular and endovascular neurosurgeon, system vice chair of Mount Sinai Neurosurgery, professor and director of Mount Sinai Cerebrovascular, and a foremost leader in neurointervention. And I believe you've written over 500 peer-reviewed papers. Those are all true statements. (laughs) (laughs) Dear Lord, Uh, that's a great title. (laughs) I I certainly like to keep busy. I'm one of those people that's just got a little touch of of, uh, too much energy. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I can vibe with that. So before we get into it, and by the way, this will probably be the least challenging interview you do all day. Because I know that uh, you and Dr. Stav Jumakaris are doing a lot of stroke interviews. Do you know Dr. Jumakaris by chance? I do. Okay. I do. Do you know she was supposed to do this interview, but she had an all-day craniotomy? So the the first time in my life that that's ever been told to me. Like, I've interviewed (laughs) musicians for most of my professional career, but I've never been told you can't interview this person because they're doing an all-day craniotomy. Yeah, unfortunately, that happens. I don't know. But you can see, I, I literally just came out of the operating room myself to uh, to make it here on time. So yeah, no, a, and if you need to time. go, if you need to go for any reason, <laughs> by all means, leave because surgery more important than doing a podcast. It's totally okay. Patient is fantastic and all is well. <laughs> <laughs> so starting out with a very basic question, what got you interested in neurosurgery? You know, it's a, it's a pretty interesting process uh, that evolves, but I'll, I'll say it this way, right? It's not a, for me at least, it was not, you know, I'm walking down the road and there's a blinding light, and a realization I have to be a neurosurgeon. That, that was not part of what I was doing or what I wanted to do. I had a vision of wanting to help people and, and I, had, I had no doctors in my family. I just was like, this would be neat. This is what I imagine helping people would be like. And, and it, it involved, you know, being good at a skill, being life and death, really trying to make a difference in people's lives. I, I didn't, there, there's wonderful parts of medicine that are helping people deal with chronic disease, helping things, you know, helping relatively healthy people be healthier, working with people that have really devastating diseases that you can't, you just help them through it for as long as you can, but eventually the disease wins. I went to medical school not knowing the difference between a pediatrician and a psychologist, truly. Um, but, but as I went through it, this was the field that touched me. I wanted the things that this field offered, which is importance of timeliness, the emergency aspect of the care, and the fact that if you do it and you're good at it, and you do it well, you have expertise. That's a big message for the audience to go to people and doctors that have expertise. If you do those things, you can save someone's life and they can go on and live a whole normal life. They can get back to everything else, to their kids and their grandkids and, and, and growing and learning. And that is so special. It's such a, I feel so privileged to be part of this field um, and interact with those kinds of patients. That, that's how I ended up here. That's incredible. Because when you think of it, like as you're going through medical school and as I just think of healthcare and medicine, I always think like the two most important things are the brain and the heart. If you're helping the brain and the heart, you can help a ton of people. 
Yeah. Well, I've got a lot of friends that work on other body parts that might take offense, okay. but, <laughs> Wait, but can we can we agree? I, I mean, can we agree the brain and the heart are pretty damn important? Well, the heart really is just a pump to get the blood to the brain. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's it is special. It is a, it is a special job, a special experience. You know, people say, "Oh, you went to school for so long. How you do it?" I would tell you it's so worth it, and it's it's a real tremendous honor to be able to do this sort of work. So, Dr. Mako, today we're going to talk about strokes. And I, I know what a stroke is. It's when, you know, the blood supply to the brain is interrupted or if there's a hemorrhage. But do we know what causes a stroke? That's a fantastic question. The, the truth is there's a lot of potential causes, right? Sometimes there's inherent weaknesses in the arteries of the blood vessel. Most of the time, it's things we can affect. Okay, number one, smoking. You can't smoke. Smoking's bad. Everybody knows it. I don't think anyone really knows how bad it is. Uh, it's really a tremendous associated risk factor. This coming from a neurosurgeon. So I, I, I take like that has weight when you say that. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, you know, smoking, high cholesterol diabetes, a lot of things that are bad in general are bad and increase your risk factors for stroke. Uh, some, But sometimes stroke, you know, the thing is, is that it can, and, and I want to emphasize this, it's not just striking people that are old and smoke and have high blood pressure and high cholesterol. The truth is, is it can strike anyone. And I have had friends since becoming a, a, a stroke specialist that are young, you know, 30s, 40 years old, that have suffered strokes. It's a, it's a disease that can strike anyone. And so I, I do think one of the things we need to do is communicate to, to the listeners that it's not, people will say, well, yeah, I'm having these symptoms, but stroke happens to old people. It doesn't happen right. to someone like me. Does it happen to me, 36-year-old healthy self? I was just talking to a gentleman earlier, 37 years old, he had a stroke. These are, these are, this is a disease that hits all age groups ubiquitously. And so people have to realize that just because you're not a smoker, yes, you shouldn't smoke, right? But if you smoke, it's worse, but you can still have a stroke even if you don't smoke. And you can still have a stroke if you're a young person. I've treated a five-year-old with a stroke. Wow. It happens. And we, and no, so no, we really, don't know why that happens? Well, eventually, so some strokes remain unknown. They're called cryptogenic, right? Because we don't, we don't understand. But most of the time, we can find out. Um, in this young man's case, it was a tear that happened in, in an artery in the neck while he was roughhousing around and he fell. Now, not every kid who falls is going to have that problem, right? Some of it's bad luck. Some of it's life and circumstance and fate and whatever else you want to call it. But the point is, is it can happen. And to dismiss it or ignore it, it that's where the real trouble happens. When strokes happen, you have to act quick. Because I was That's reading correct. some articles that says 2 million brain cells die each minute, pulse stroke when you don't treat it. They say a week of life happens for every minute that it's not treated. So I've always like worried about this. How do you act quickly with a stroke? Because you got to call 911. You got to wait for the ambulance. The ambulance has to take you to the hospital. And I think that's a big part of what you do for World Stroke Day and Stroke Awareness Month. That's 100% correct. So first, I think I got to pause for a second. Two million brain cells a minute, a minute. So you lose, I, you said it right. I want to emphasize, right? Like 
we're talking about tremendous, tremendous damage, a week of life, a week of life. Like you're, the, the rate at which the brain can be damaged when you have one of these strokes is so fast. Time is so important. So I, I just, the, you can't say it enough, right? The time is absolutely crucial. Now, layer on top of that, the challenge with stroke is that people will have symptoms, right? They'll say, oh, I'm slurring my speech or my, my face, maybe my face is droopy, I can't tell or something like that, right? And they'll ignore it. They'll say, oh, I'm going to give it, let me wait a half hour, see if it gets better because I don't want to deal with the inconvenience. So that's when you got to act on it. That's when you got to act. And then there's a double challenge with stroke itself because patients who are having strokes often have a hard time realizing it because it's affecting their brain. And so loved ones will say, hey, dad, hey, honey, something's wrong. We should call 911. And the loved one says, no, 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 just let me wait for a while and I'll be okay. Right. I'm just, I'm fumbling. I'm dropping things. I don't know why my balance is off. And, but those are crucial minutes. And so listeners have to be empowered to, to call 911 for their loved ones, for their family ones. If they see the signs and symptoms of a stroke, all right, we have a mnemonic, be fast, right? Be fast, emphasize you got to be fast. Mm-hmm. And balance, B for balance, if their balance is off, E for vision, eyes, if you have problems, double vision, problems seeing out of one of your eyes or seeing to one side, right? F for face, if the face is asymmetric, if part of your face is drooping. A for arm, if one of your arms is weak. So you ask them to hold up their arm and one arm is drifting down, you can't get, they can't get it up, they can't get it up. Speech, S for speech, garbled speech, slurred speech. Sometimes people will, it'll be clear, but it won't make sense or they just can't get words out where they can't understand, right? Speech problems. All of those add up to T, time, be fast, time. Time is of the essence. You've got to call 911, call your emergency services, get to the hospital right away. So that's, if, if we could hammer one point home today, it's that component of it. Be fast. Be fast. That's exactly right. You brought up the ambulance, right? You got to call the ambulance. They got to come and all the rest. So that's a good point. Another thing people will do is they'll say, well, by the time I call the ambulance, they come here, I'm just going to drive my husband or wife to the hospital on my own. Okay. I don't want to deal with an ambulance and all that hullabaloo. And I want to emphasize that you should call 911. You should get the emergency care because there's a couple things that happen that are really important. When your listeners hear this, they're going to understand. Number one, even if you can get there as fast as an ambulance with their sirens on, even if you could, you have to realize that if the ambulance sees you and thinks you're having a stroke, they're calling ahead to the hospital. So the hospital is getting ready to receive you. They're getting the CAT scan ready and open. They're getting everything prepared there. That's going to make your eventual treatment. It's not about how fast you get to the hospital. It's how fast you get to the actual treatment. So your treatment's going to happen way faster if you call it ambulance, even if you can drive to the hospital quicker. That's number one. Number two, and also incredibly important, not every hospital is the same. Some hospitals have the ability to treat strokes, certain kinds of strokes. Other hospitals don't. That's not a fault of the hospital. It's just you can't have all the resources everywhere, right? It's just not possible. And so the ambulance hopefully will know which, right, which is the right hospital to take you to and take you to that hospital. And so that's better than you just driving to the place that happens to be closest to your house, where if the ambulance takes you five minutes further, you're going to get quicker treatment rather than having to sit at the first hospital for an hour. They get right. transferred 
Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That's really important for the audience to understand. And this could be a whole webinar, but when you get a patient in the emergency room who has suffered a stroke, how do you even know where to start? Uh, well, the very first thing you do and the very first thing the hospital should do is a quick assessment, make sure the patient's stable, right? That they're not choking, that they're, they, their airways protected, that their blood pressure is okay, things like that. But that takes, that's very fast. Make sure the patient's stable, make sure they're okay. At that point, you bring them directly to a CAT scan machine, a CT scan you might've heard about. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it uses x-rays to look at the brain directly. And it can rule out, it can determine whether the stroke is a bleeding stroke, what we call hemorrhagic, or an ischemic stroke, which is a blockage, not enough blood flow to the brain. Depending on what you see there, the pathways change, different things happen, but all of them need to happen quickly and all of them need to happen emergently. And so that's the first step, right? Now, what you don't realize or what the listener might not realize is behind the scenes, while when the ED calls the hospital, if you're going to the right kind of place, when the ambulance calls the hospital, the emergency room, the emergency room is getting ready to do that CAT scan. At the same time, they're notifying the neurosurgeons and the neurointerventionalists and the stroke physicians to get their team down there to be ready to get a, a special operating room suite, what we call an interventional suite ready, to call in the right people to be there, you know, the right people with the right expertise to perform the surgery if it's necessary. So all of those things you want happening parallel processing so that the patient isn't waiting for hours and hours for their therapy because of the importance of time that you emphasized at the very beginning. Because you got to be fast too. The whole, yeah, the whole team's got to be fast. <laughs> that's correct. I've, I've dedicated my life to ensuring I, I don't have a good night's rest almost ever. <laughs> <laughs> so World Stroke Day happens in October. Stroke Awareness Month is happening in May. So the goal for you for both World Stroke Day and Stroke Awareness Month is what? Two goals. Goal number one, public awareness. Let's make sure people understand what the symptoms are so they get to the hospital, okay? We only successfully treat about 10%, maybe 15% total of all the severe strokes that we could fix because patients don't get to the right place fast enough. So that's number one public awareness. Number two, influence policy, influence what we call systems of care. And that, that's tied to public awareness. If your listeners are out there, reach out to their legislators, get involved in their communities to make sure that their ambulance systems have a process to make sure they don't just take you to the closest hospital, but they take you to a hospital that's certified and specializes in stroke care. That's not a knock on the other hospitals. They're wonderful and good. But if you have a stroke, you've got to get to a place where they can give all the treatment you need. So those are our goals. Public awareness, policy changes, policy evolution to get it so that instead of treating 10 or 15% of these strokes, we're treating 85 or 90% of these strokes. Yeah, that's a good point because I was reading some articles and it said that first responders aren't always equipped to handle a stroke like they would be for trauma. Someone gets right. gets into a car accident. It's like, oh, like we, we know what to do. Someone gets a stroke. Maybe those first responders aren't fully equipped. And that's where advocacy comes in. I completely agree with you. I think you're spot on. Now, in fairness, it's also, it's pretty easy to recognize someone has a trauma. Sometimes right. recognizing their stroke is a little more challenging. So, you know, it's a complicated issue. But the more we can empower our first responders, they're 
among the most dedicated people you could ever imagine. And so if we can give them the skills, the tools, and, and the rules and infrastructure to get patients to the right places, I, I know they'll do it to the best. And then, Dr. Mako, how do you treat a stroke afterwards? And if you get a stroke, are you more likely to get another one? Yes. If you've had a stroke, you're more likely to have another stroke. So here's a really interesting challenge. When we treat someone with a stroke, especially an ischemic stroke, we're really treating a symptom of a different problem that caused the clot to go there in the first place. So that's why, again, you want doctors with expertise that are going to look for where did this come from in the first place? Did it come from your heart? Did it come from your carotid artery, from your vertebral artery? Did it come from some other place? Because we got to deal with that too. So another one doesn't come. That's absolutely crucial. Number two, you want doctors to know how to get you into the right therapy, the right rehab. Stroke patients can make tremendous recoveries, tremendous recoveries, but they need to be engaged. People need to believe they can do it and they got to have the right support network. I'm totally fascinated by this, by the way. Usually I interject a lot more, but I'm just sitting back and I'm listening to you. So Dr. <laughs> Mako, I talk to no, 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 not at all. Like this is, this is fascinating stuff. And if this is beneath you, I apologize. If you're like, oh, I just delivered like a three-hour symposium. I'm doing this now? <laughs> Not in the least. This is, the symposiums, I'm talking to doctors that already think they know everything. It's good to talk to you and to everyone else out there and try to make a difference. All right. That makes me feel better. So I wanted to ask you just some questions about your career. You just seem so easygoing. So I want to know what has been one of the most challenging moments in your career? Doesn't have to be the most challenging, but a challenging moment that happened to you that you were able to overcome. Fantastic question. And it's tied to stroke care. In 2013, there were some trials that were studies, research studies that were done that were well-intentioned, but were out of sync with what those of us that were on the cutting edge of providing care were doing. And those trials came out and they showed a lack of benefit to acutely trying to fix strokes the way we're describing right now. And I will tell you, it was a very challenging time because the broader medical community that didn't have the expertise and weren't really diving in on this said, there's nothing to do. Stroke is horrible, but there's no reason to try to do these surgeries. There's no reason to try to help. And a, and a, a group of us, and it was a broad group, I was lucky enough to be one of them really band together and worked hard to generate better, higher quality, more modern trials. Now, better is not the right word. Equally good, but more modern with more modern techniques and, and, and the rest, more recent trials. And within two years, in 2015, a whole bevy of studies that we all worked on together and ran came out and showed that this was unequivocally beneficial and powerful. In fact, it's maybe the most powerful treatment we have in all of medicine. For every two people we treat, we save someone from death or disability. Think about that. Every two people. Uh, antibiotics for a severe infection, it's every four people. Intervention for a heart attack, it's every 13 or 16 people. So this is, it was a tremendous challenge to see the medical, medical community question the value. And it was tremendously rewarding to change the way medicine is practiced with that new evidence. I'm going to add something to your title. Game changer. There you go. You're going to have to put that on your business card. So uh, well, <laughs> I think I think we've gone over time. Do you have time for a few more questions? Because I want to respect your time. 
Um, unfortunately, I oh, have to speak to somebody else. You got to go. All I'm, right. I'm, I'm having so much fun. I wish I really could stay longer. Real quick, Hobby, what, what, how do you decompress? This is like quick fire spend now. Time. I spend it with my kids. Spend it with I your got, kids. I got three boys, and that's I, I spend my time doing medicine and taking my kids to, to youth sports and, and being, being a good dad. Being a good dad, being with family. Do you listen to any music in the operating room? All the time. What music? Um, uh, um, the residents like to default to classic rock because they know that that I like that an awful lot. I listen to everything, but in the OR, we tend to go with classic rock. And how many people call you Dr. J? Anyone who sees me on the basketball court would never call me Dr. J. <laughs> I appreciate you going into overtime with me. So that will do it for us. For Dr. J Mako, my name is Jim Shear, and we will see Yens later.